0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: HRN is now on Kitch, the first live streaming community for the food obsessed. Go to kittch.com and find HRN in the channels listing. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using BentoBox today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com/chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com/chef.
2: I hate the taste of cherries and orange juice. I know, it's weird. Growing up, my parents would always get cherry-flavored medicine, and every time I'd get a whiff of it, I'd get nauseous. My dad thought of the bright idea of mixing the medicine with orange juice. He'd call me over saying, Giselle, here, drink some orange juice, and it'd be his little concoction. This didn't work, by the way. I now refuse to drink
3: juice because I feel like I'm getting played. All of this has me thinking, what tastes do people hate? I hate the taste of crunchy peanut butter with the nuts in it. Black licorice. Um, I also hate cardamom and star anise.
4: Well, I hate the taste of wasabi. This is not so much a taste,
0: it's more of a texture. I can't stand tripe. Tripe. Cilantro.
5: I mean, mayonnaise is kind of gross. I like cucumber,
6: but cucumber water, I don't, I don't like it.
2: What don't you like about it?
6: It tastes kind of soapy to me.
5: Taste varies immensely from person to person. In many ways, our preferences surrounding food are so individual, whether you hate crunchy peanut butter or you think spa water resembles soap. At the same time, our tastes are inevitably influenced by larger forces, like the cultures we grew up in, our heritage, food media, and restaurant ratings. This week, we take a closer look at tastemakers. We try to understand who and what have shaped our palate over the years and how our tastes may be changing. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and Three on HRN.
0: Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three.
7: One meat, three sides.
1: Food, news, and storytelling.
7: A
5: square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. Diners' expectations of how much a meal will cost can vary based on the cuisine. And many Americans expect Mexican cuisine to be cheap and fast. A study conducted in 2015 found that the average bill for one person at a Zagat-listed restaurant in New York City was almost $70 for Japanese food, about $65 for French food, and $55 for Italian food. For Mexican food, the total came out to $40. Sophie Talco Berco speaks with Chef Val Cantu, the chef and founder of San Francisco based restaurant Californios, about the emergence of Mexican cuisine in fine dining.
8: Californios is the only two Michelin star Mexican restaurant in the world.
6: I think our broad Uh, understanding of cuisine has to be expanded. You know, the idea that French and Japanese cuisine are these like at the top end of the spectrum of cuisine. There's so many cultures that have so much to share.
8: Cuisines are ascribed different levels of prestige. A cuisine's value in mainstream culture generally depends on its proximity to whiteness and the home nation's cultural and economic capital. The stereotypes surrounding Mexican cuisine often echo racist beliefs. Mexican food is labeled as unhealthy and inexpensive. The initial reaction to the price tag and style of food at Californios reflects this cultural attitude.
6: I think when we first opened Californios, we we received a decent amount of pushback from people. Because we were serving a tasting menu, and it was not the Mexican cuisine that people were used to, and we were one of the first in the United States to to be doing it, and um, people were just not used to it. It was just too unusual.
8: While Mexican cuisine is often simplified in the U.S. to a couple of unchanging signature dishes, such as rice, beans, and burritos, the flavors and ingredients are far more wide-ranging. Chef Val draws inspiration from the evolution of ingredients throughout the seasons.
6: The tasting menu, you know, really it's about a progression of flavors. You know, we start with like light and cold and uh, really the, the dishes are developed purely based on what's coming into season, what our farmers are bringing us. We try to have four distinct menus throughout the year and we want each one of them to really feel like the season. You know, we want as you eat it to sort of feel like wow okay it is spring these are all these spring green bright vibrant flavors
8: he finds inspiration in unexpected places including historical texts Mexican cuisine has a long and rich history salsa dates back to the aztecs and corn to the mayans
6: a lot of it is just looking back at old texts from you know the aztec and even mayan empire and just like thinking of like simple flavors and what might have been served, and you know sometimes like our dishes are incredibly simple, like beans and cheese and like maybe like hoja Santa or something like that and the old texts are really inspiring to me if I can find old texts, I try to find them and there's you know always something that I didn't know in them, and there's always something that's inspiring in them it's
8: wrong to think of Mexican food as simple or stagnant
6: there's so much complexity and so m- many uh, sauces in Mexican cuisine. And, you know, there's like, so much life and uh, vibrance. If you go to Mexico, it's changing constantly, you know, they're, they're constantly innovating and coming up with new things, even on the streets, you know, and I think that's like, what people need to understand is that cuisine is like a living thing. It doesn't just exist in a book. And it certainly doesn't exist in these like, old hat Mexican menus that most people are used to. And that's not to say that those places aren't great. I love those restaurants, too, but it can be more than that, I think.
8: You may be wondering, what's next for the two Michelin star chef?
6: Oh, you know, I would love to think of Mexican restaurants or Mexican cuisine getting three stars.
8: Why is this yet to happen? Why is a pasta dish often valued at $20, but a taco is worth $2? Next time you dine, consider the assumptions behind the value you attribute to different cuisines. Who gets to define taste and why?
5: Just as some cuisines have received less prestige and recognition due to stereotyping, so too have individuals in the food industry. Tastemakers, Mayuka Sen's first book, tells the story of seven immigrant women some more well-known, others less, who have each influenced the American culinary tradition. Since its release last November, Tastemakers has received widespread praise. Nora Peachin chats with the author about the inspiration behind the book and his hopes for its impact.
7: One year into his food writing career, Mayuk found himself increasingly unsettled by many of the narratives around immigration he was seeing in the American food media.
4: These are often coming from uh, white-led publications, and uh, they were circulating talking points that were along the lines of immigrants get the job done and immigrants feed America. And I understand the sincere good intentions behind such talking points, yet to me they felt somewhat patronizing in the sense that uh, they were subtly and inadvertently, perhaps, reinforcing this idea that the value of immigrant lives in America should only be based on the productivity of immigrants and what they provide to a privileged uh, consumer. And that same privileged population is one that uh, the American food media has, uh, you know, been geared toward for so long.
7: Mayuk wanted to tell a different kind of story, one that focused on the creative aspirations of immigrants that honored their labor and the enormous challenges they must overcome in both their personal and professional lives. He also
4: really wanted to understand why it is that some names endure in popular memory and why others might not. And uh, as a result, I was so attracted to the idea of Marcella Hazan.
7: Marcella Hazan gained recognition for her cookbooks on traditional Italian cuisine. She won multiple James Beard Awards, wrote recipes for the New York Times, and is widely credited with introducing Italian food to the American public.
4: People have, would likely have described her as a quote-unquote difficult woman, uh, which is a plainly sexist descriptor. And what I wanted to understand was why it was that Marcella Hazan, in spite of those sorts of uh, characterizations of her that uh, you know could be uh, some could see as unkind, uh, did not prevent her from uh, becoming a household name because she's arguably the most famous of uh, the seven women, seven immigrant women in my book, you know? And so perhaps there were uh, things she did in her career and structural advantages that she possessed that allowed her to rise to a level of fame and have longevity that a few of these other women did not.
7: For instance, Mayuk tells the stories of women like Chao Yang Bue a doctor who wrote a book on Chinese cooking after immigrating to the United States from China with her husband, and Julie Sani, an Indian immigrant who founded her own cooking school, wrote cookbooks, and helped open several Indian restaurants in New York. For some of these other women, despite their career successes, they never reached the same level of fame as women like Marcella and Julia Child. But no matter the level of celebrity each individual woman achieved— Mayuk considers them all
4: tastemakers in the sense that they really did uh, establish the aesthetic standards uh, surrounding food that so many of us still follow today, and they have truly shaped the way America cooks and eats and even talks about food today.
7: Mayuk hopes that by highlighting these women's stories, he'll illuminate for readers all it has taken to bring new cuisines into the American culinary repertoire and to make American food the amalgamation of international flavors we know it to be.
4: I want my readers, after uh, you know, spending some time with this book, to understand that there's so much struggle embedded in making that reality possible for consumers. And you just see a fraction of that struggle in the seven women in this book.
7: Mayuk himself has faced struggles as a professional in the food industry.
4: I was someone who came to that job with no prior experience in food writing whatsoever. Uh, I had always figured that the... Uh, the career path would just be um, off limits for someone like me because I'm a queer person of color. And I always thought that food writing was the domain of rich, straight white men for some reason, uh, because in my head, I conflated food writing with restaurant criticism, which was saturated with uh, so many people, uh, you know, who belong to those demographics.
7: Mayuk described feeling alone because of his identity.
4: I was writing from a different center of gravity from that of my peers. Uh, My food memories looked different from theirs.
7: It was in this isolation that he found the inspiration for the articles, which ultimately led him to write tastemakers.
4: I started gravitating towards story subjects who belonged to marginalized communities like myself, and I wrote stories about them that attempted to uh, recirculate their legacies in the fullness that I felt like they deserved.
7: He hopes Tastemakers will not be the only book to attempt this.
4: I don't want this book to shoulder the burden of being the definitive text or whatever on immigration and food in America. Um, I hope that emerging food writers will read this book and be inspired to tell these stories in a fresh, exciting new way that just blows my mind completely.
5: We'll be right back with more Meat 3 after a brief break.
1: Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let BentoBox design and build you a beautifully branded website. BentoBox websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage BentoBox to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. HRN is excited to announce that we've launched our channel on Kitch, the new food-centric live streaming video platform for interviews, cooking classes, and more. In April, in collaboration with Kitsch and the Mushroom Council, we're celebrating Earth Month with delicious, nutritious, and sustainable mushroom recipes. Check out the latest videos on our channel to see Eat Your Heartland Out host Capri Cafaro, Jupiter's Almanac host Matthew Rayford, and Item 13 host Yoram Aku, Aku, Aku moderate recipe demos with chefs Jeremy Fox and Allie Rosen. Join us at kittch.com to become part of the first live streaming community for the food obsessed.
5: Welcome back to Meet and Three. When it comes to shaping the standards for fine dining, it's impossible to overlook the Michelin Guide as an influential tastemaker. Sarah Mathis finds out what the history of the guide can tell us about the stars that can make or break a restaurant.
2: When I think Michelin Guide, I think prestige. White tablecloths, steak tartare shaped into a perfect cylinder, tiny portions on big plates. So suffice to say, I was a little surprised to find out that Michelin is in fact white puffy Michelin man Michelin. He sells quality tires, surely but not exactly the sort of guy you'd expect to see at a Michelin-starred restaurant. As it turns out, when brothers Andre and Edward Michelin founded their tire company in 1889, there were only about 3,000 cars in all of France. So how are they gonna get people to wear out their tires? And how are they gonna convince those horse and buggy loyalists to join the motor age? Their answer? To reduce what startup CEOs might call the friction of travel to increase the friction on those tires. They published The Little Red Guide with maps and fueling stations and restaurants, places worthy of burning some rubber to try out. And in the 1920s, they brought on a team of mystery inspectors to critique restaurants across France. They developed a three-star system. One star, meaning it is a very good restaurant in its category. Two stars, that it's excellent cooking, worth a detour. And three stars, that is exceptional cuisine worthy of a special journey. But what surprised me more than the unlikely relation between the stars and the tires was the hidden ugliness behind the prestige. At the same time as the guide started gathering traction in the 1920s and 30s, the Michelin Tire Company was exploiting thousands of Vietnamese workers on their rubber plantations as part of the French colonial project. Many of Michelin's workers came from the north to work on rubber plantations in the south. Recruiting northern workers was a strategy plantation managers developed alongside the colonial government when it became clear that local workers preferred not to sign the long-term contracts and could easily walk away when working conditions proved intolerable. One such northerner, Tian Tu-bing, kept a careful account of his time on the plantation, In his memoir, he recounts hunger, humiliation, workers being crushed by felled trees, and rampant malaria. Multiple sources confirm that Michelin knew about the malaria ravaging its workforce, but did not provide sufficient medical care until it was too late. Nearly one in five of that plantation's young workforce died that year. French colonialism in Indochina, what is now Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, was justified by a narrative of a civilizing mission. The logic was that France would bring its culture and its intellectual advances to the, quote, unsophisticated native people. That was about a hundred years ago, but it may be of note that although Michelin Guide has expanded into a number of countries in Asia, it has not yet begun reviewing any restaurants in France's former Indochina colonies. Nor have I been able to find an acknowledgement from Michelin anywhere of the inhumane conditions on its plantations there." In 2020, the publication Eater noted the conspicuous omissions of female-run kitchens, South and Southeast Asian eateries, and Chinese restaurants from the New York Guide. In a city with such diverse cuisine executed at all levels, these omissions only added to the long-levied accusation that Michelin favors European, American, and Japanese cuisine. However, Michelin has refuted these accusations at every turn. In a blog post on its website, Michelin maintains that any lack of diversity in its star selections are due to larger industry biases and economic factors that prevent women and people of color in the restaurant industry from advancing to top positions. Michelin insists that the star selection process is, and has always been, about the food alone. Their inspectors are highly trained and star selections are validated by a diverse group of inspectors from multiple global regions. But without reckoning with its hand in violent colonialism, can Michelin really claim to be a neutral arbiter of what elevates dinner to fine dining experience? How can we expect it to catch those smaller instances of cultural bias, if not this glaring black spot, in
5: its past. As much as our tastes are influenced by big cultural forces like the Michelin Guide, they also depend on our physical senses, which evolve with time and in a different way for everyone. Zoe Denkla speaks with chemosensory scientist Gary Bocamp to learn more.
3: I must have heard this somewhere when I was younger, and it just stuck. I was under the impression that your taste buds died as you got older, allowing you to enjoy more complex or extreme flavors. I asked my friend, and they had always heard the opposite, that your taste buds develop with age. So who was right here? Why does your taste shift with age? I called up Gary Beecham to get to the bottom of this question. Gary is an expert in chemosensory science, a.k.a. he's worked on understanding taste and smell for a long time. Turns out, neither of us were correct. Changing taste actually has very little to do with our
9: taste buds. The taste system lasts for pretty much the entire life. There is some decline, but it's not as profound as our loss of smell. Sense of smell actually declines much more uh, dramatically with age. Do you
3: remember when you are a kid and everything smelled so strong? Like, you have no idea how adults could tolerate eating blue cheese. So, this is not true with little, little kids, but by the time you're around 8 years old, your nose is in tip-top shape. This sense diminishes gradually as we age, and by the time you reach around 65 to 80, we can lose up to 80% of smell. And that loss of smell has a huge impact on how we taste.
9: If you lose your sense of smell, you can no longer discriminate, say, an apple from potato. Or if you hold your nose and drink a flavored beverage, it will probably be just sweet. But if you release your nose, all of a sudden you get this marvelous flavor, which is really the sense of smell.
3: Here I was, foolishly thinking, our taste buds called the shots when it came to how we perceive food. Gary helped me get the basics. For starters, the taste detected on your taste buds...
9: Most commonly, the sweet, sour, salty, or bitter component, and perhaps the umami component. These senses are the least influenced by aging and loss.
3: Humans have roughly 9,000 taste receptors... These buds are in a constant cycle of dying and regenerating. So your taste buds do die off, but they grow back every two to three weeks. So this doesn't have a major irreversible impact on how we perceive flavor. Most of these receptors are located on the back of our tongue. There are even a few in the back of your
9: throat. These receptors have a pathway up to the brain that allows us to say, ah, this is sweet. This is good. Ah, this is bitter. This is not so good. And this information is then processed in the brain and comes together along with the other sensory information.
3: But Gary emphasized that scientists consider taste as just one small component of how we perceive flavor.
9: There is a broader definition, and this is actually mediated by several senses, including the sense of taste, but also, very importantly, the sense of smell.
3: Okay, picture this. There's a bowl of steaming hot soup in front of you. The smell wafts up before your spoon even touches the bowl. That aroma travels to your nose and is then...
9: Dissolved into mucus, into the watery layer around the receptor area, which are fine cilia that are up in the top of the nose. These cilia are connected directly to the brain. So in essence, we have a piece of the brain sticking out in our nose.
3: This might not be conscious, but we continue to take in these aromas as we eat thus actively impacting how we perceive the flavor of our food. Then there's the third and final impact on our taste.
9: Which is the sense that detects things like hot peppers or menthol. One of the most distinctive features of human beings, as distinguished from other animals, is that they like hot peppers. It's very puzzling why we would like something that seems to be sending to our body something that says, this is dangerous, this is painful. And we come to, for reasons that nobody quite understands, like these sensations.
3: Take soda, for example, or really any carbonated beverage. You know that kind of dancey, bubbly feeling you get on the tip of your tongue? Gary explains this is actually a prime example of humans indulging in irritation.
9: It's caused by the carbon dioxide going through the skin and hitting these pain receptors. And it's it really is giving you a low level of pain. Order a ginger ale or something like that and stick your tongue into it and see how long you can hold it there. Because what you'll find is the pain grows and grows and grows until it's really excruciating. And those three senses work together, and we don't separate them when we're eating something.
3: My initial grasp on how we taste may have been a bit off base, but now that we've got a better sense of all the factors that go into this complex sensation, my original question remained. What does account for shifting food preference as we age? Think about your go-to breakfast as a kid. Mine was two Boston cream donuts and a large hot chocolate. I would order it every chance I got. Now, I can't imagine eating that first thing in the morning. Don't get me wrong, I love a donut every now and then. I just don't have the same craving or sugar tolerance I once had. Anyone who's had a kid, or been a kid, so everyone, knows kids love sugar. Intense levels of sugar. Gary explained to me this liking of sugar is innately part of what makes us human.
9: It's presumed that this functions to allow the organism to detect sources of carbohydrate calories, that is, uh, plants that have sugars in them. Young children tend to like much higher levels than do adults. It's been argued that this is because they're growing, they need Uh, Certainly they need calories. And so they they have a really strong desire for high levels of sugar. And everybody, all mothers and, and parents know this.
3: Sugar is wholeheartedly embraced by kids, but unfamiliar or complex tasting foods, not so much. Gary explains this aversion to new flavors is also innate to our development.
9: One of the classic things about children not liking vegetables, in a sense, a smart thing because vegetables tend to have bitter things and uh, children are, should, should be wary uh, of them. And that makes sense because, once again, bitter things in nature tend to be things that are not good for you. They're poison.
3: So when did the Boston cream hot chocolate combo lose its appeal? According to Gary, we lose this innate drive to consume high levels of sugar and salt during adolescence. As we get older, with repeated exposure, we're in less of an extreme survival mode. Maybe you've watched your parents eat broccoli enough times that you know the bitter taste won't kill you. Dropping our guard is ultimately better for our health. A wider range of foods usually means more nutritional value in our diet. In conclusion, there's no simple answer for why our taste preferences change over time. It's the natural loss of smell, it's the end of childhood survival mode, it's repeated exposure over time, and it's cultural norms. And if you are over 65, you will start to experience a slight deterioration of taste buds. In a way, neither me or my friend were fully right or fully wrong. Flavors do become more nuanced as you age, and Eventually, your taste buds do start to die off. Thinking about flavors changing used to kind of bum me out. Now, this change doesn't feel limiting, but kind of limitless. Maybe someday I'll actually be able to order a Negroni and enjoy it.
5: Special thanks this week to Giselle Medina, Sophie Talco-Burko, Zoe Denkla, Sarah Mathis, and Nora Peachin. Meet in 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Moseman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.